I would like to begin our study this morning by reading a portion of our uh, text, Romans 2, 1 through 16. Now, if you feel inclined to set yourself up as a judge of those who sin, let me assure you, whoever you are, that you're in no position to do so. For at whatever point you condemn others, you automatically condemn yourself, since you, the judge, commit the same sins. God's judgment, we know, is utterly impartial in its action action against such evildoers. What makes you think that you, who so readily judge the sins of others, can consider yourself beyond the judgment of God? Are you perhaps misinterpreting God's generosity and patient mercy towards you as weakness on his part? Don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or are you, by your obstinate refusal to repent, simply storing up for yourself an experience of the wrath of God in the day when he shows his hand in righteous judgment? There is no doubt at all that he will render to every man according to his works. And that means eternal life to those who impatiently, do, who impatiently doing good aim at the unseen but real glory and honor of the eternal world. It also means anger and wrath for those who rebel against God's plan of life and who in so doing make themselves the very servants of evil. Yes, it means bitter pain and a fearful undoing for every human soul that works on the side of evil for the Jew first and then for the Greek. But let me repeat, there is glory and honor and peace for every worker on the side of good for the Jew first and then the Greek, for there is no preferential treatment with God. Uh, This is a uh, difficult passage to hear. Uh, What Jesus' disciples would describe, I think, is a hard saying. But uh, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, My mother used to quote Longfellow's nursery rhyme about the little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very good indeed, but when she was bad, she was horrid. Uh, I always thought that my mother had my big sister in mind. (laughs) I think now that she probably had me and her thoughts. Uh, A friend, uh, actually one of the pastors that we work with, reported to me recently that a mutual friend, one who knew me in my adolescence, described me as a mean kid. Uh, It mortified me when I heard it, but it was probably true. As it turns out, Longfellow could have had all of us in mind. Uh, We uh, human beings on occasion are good indeed, but we're capable of remarkable acts of evil. We can be very uh, heroic, we can be very altruistic, but at the same time, we can be horrid. Um, Oriental philosophers, as you know, describe that incongruity in what they call uh, the yin-yang. You've probably seen that symbol. It looks like two coiled fish. One is white and one is black. Uh, 
The black they call the yin, the white they call the yang. Black means shadow in Chinese, and uh, the white and uh, yin means dark. What they were trying to get across is the idea that those contradictory principles reside in every living thing. That includes us. It's that dark side or the yin that Paul addresses in chapter 1. He makes what I think is a startling statement. He tells us that we all know God. That's true of the entire race, even agnostics and cynics, secularists and atheists. I think that's why atheists are often so militant. It's because they're inveighing against something that's deeply embedded in them, this nettlesome, troublesome, bothersome thing that we're constantly haunted by the presence of God. But Paul also makes the statement that though we know God, we don't honor Him as God. We don't give Him thanks. He gives us everything that's good and true and beautiful, and we prostitute all of these things upon ourselves. We use them for our own self-interest, and we never give Him the time of day. That's what J.B. Phillips calls deliberate atheism. We choose not to acknowledge God. And Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 1 that God loves us enough to let us have our way, because that's what love does. It doesn't foist itself upon us. It doesn't demand that we respond. But But without God, Paul says, our lives become futile, empty. That's his term. And we descend into frustrated, empty sexual perversions that lead us to loneliness, boredom, self-hatred, self-hatred, darkness, and depression. Now, that's the dark side of our humanity, the yin, for which we all have the potential. And that's why Paul says what he does in chapter 2. Now, uh, here in chapter 2, Paul takes up our sunny side, the, the yang, and he uses a very similar uh, procedure, same pattern that he uses in chapter 1. He says, first of all, we intuitively know goodness. No one has to teach us the difference between good and evil. We know. And we know that we know goodness because we pass judgment on others. As a friend of mine says, we should on others. We tell them you should or you shouldn't, you ought or you ought not to. On what basis can we say that? Because we know that there is a standard. The very act of judging one another assumes that there is somewhere a concrete objective standard to which we, to which we agree. Uh, anthropologists, as they've gone around the world and and investigated over other cultures, discover that moral systems, wherever you go, are remarkably similar. In fact, they are more similar than they are dissimilar. They're not exactly the same, but they're, they're hauntingly the same, which lets us know that every human being has with him some knowledge of good and evil. Uh, uh, during the 5th century before Christ, there were a group of uh, people who, who described themselves as sophists, as wise men, Plato and, and others, 
who were trying to discover why it is that we have this innate, intuitively, uh, intuitive sense of justice. No one has to tell us what's good or what is evil. We know. We know. Now, where does that come from? And they came to the conclusion that there is another transcendent world, a world of reality beyond ours, where there are certain ideas which some of them said existed in the mind of God, certain moral principles, which they called ideas or forms, and that our understanding of those forms is shadowed in, in, in the, or shadows of, the, of those realities that are, that are, that are expressed in this, in this world. They, they knew that we know the difference between good and evil. Now, Paul puts it very simpler, simply here in this passage in verse 15, a verse that I will get to in a moment. God writes the requirements of the moral law on our hearts. Every man and woman sitting in this audience, every man and woman, any place we may go around the world has a knowledge of good and evil that's written on the heart. Um, Paul goes on to say in verse 1 that even though we know goodness, we don't conform to it. You who pass judgment, he said, do the same things. We lecture our children on the necessity of patience, and we lose our own with them. We teach our children about tolerance, and we display our own bigotry. We teach values, and we violate them. Uh, later on in verse 22 of the same chapter, uh, he says, You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Uh, we may say, I, I would never commit adultery. I'm faithful to my wife. But what about our thoughts? Because what we think is what we are. Samuel Johnson said, Every man knows thoughts of himself that he would not tell to his dearest friends. In other words, there is a secret, dark, shady, hidden side, side of every one of us that we, that we never speak of, and we'd be mortified if other people knew about it. Let me give you a thought question. Would you rather be good and be thought of as evil, or would you rather be evil and thought of as good. I frankly, I think most of us would opt for the latter. Remember that uh, hokey uh, old television? Show? Well, it's still around Saturday Night Live, and it is character that interviewed all these plastic personalities. And at the end of the interview, he'd always say the same thing: "Remember, looking good is better than being good." And that's where most of us. That's where most of us are. Well then. I ask, if I know right and wrong, why do I keep going wrong? Well, Paul tells us, I misconstrue God's kindness. I show, as he puts it, contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is leading me toward repentance. That's chapter 2, verse 4. I may think of God as a big softy who, at the judgment seat, will let me off with a slap on the wrist and a mild reprimand for my naughty escapades and with the statement, well, boys will be boys. What I don't realize is that God's kindness is there to call me 
to repentance. We'll consider this phrase later. But, Paul says, despite what I believe, there will be a comeuppance. There will be a judgment. Paul says, God will show his hand in righteous judgment. That's verse 5. God will show his hand in righteous judgment. And I know it. Did, do you remember that old television program years back, TW3, that was the week that was? Uh, very satirical, very funny at times, very sobering at other times. There is one segment that I've never forgotten. David Frost was sitting behind a card table, and behind him there were two doors. One was labeled hell, and one was, was labeled heaven. And a man came to the table, took his hat off, and he said, which way do I go? And Frost said, you know. And he said, come on, tell me, which way do I go? And Frost said, you know. This went on three or four times. Finally, the man crumpled up his hat and walked through the door to hell. We know. Now, let me tell you something about hell. This is a side note, okay? Hell has always bothered me. As a younger Christian struggling with a lot of the fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith, I really, I really had a problem with the idea that a just, even a just God, but a God who is loving, would send people to hell for eternity to suffer. I, I just could not reconcile that with what I knew of the character of God. Now, let, let me tell you how I resolved it. Okay. Now, this is, this is just my approach to it. This is not gospel. Okay. But you take this home and, and you think about it because you may be troubled as well. I settled it on the basis of St. John's statement, God is love. Now, uh, the Bible never says God is justice or God is kindness. But it does say God is love. Now, what that means is that everything that God does is loving. So in some way, hell is a loving act of God. How can that be? Because God loves us enough to let us have what we want. If we want to live our lives without God, he will give us permission to do so. And what that means, Paul says, is eternal exclusion from the, this is in Thessalonians, eternal exclusion from the power and the presence of God. In other words, God's not there. And we've never experienced anything like that. There's no goodness. There's no truth. There's no love. There's no beauty. There's no laughter. There's nothing that makes life worthwhile. Hell would be exactly the right word for it. Now, for myself, I don't think that hell is a place of, of fire and brimstone. I think that comes more from Dante than from the New Testament. It is true that Jesus said, it described hell as Gehenna. He says, where the fire does, is never extinguished and where, where the worm never dies. He was thinking of a geographical location. That's, uh, that was a metaphor. Just to the southwest, yes, yeah, southwest of Jerusalem is a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. 
That's Gehenna. Ge is the Aramaic word for valley, and Hinnom is the word for, Hin- for this family, the, the, Hin- the Hinnomites, who lived in that valley. So it was called the Valley of Hinnom. Very early in, in Jerusalem's history, it became a garbage dump. They'd throw all their garbage over the side of the wall and roll down into the, into the valley. And it, it probably through spontaneous combustion caught on fire and it smoked and burned and smelled awful. People hated to go down there. It was a garbage dump. And so when God describes hell as Gehenna, he's saying it is like a cosmic garbage heap. It's a place of wasted lives. No matter what people have done, how successful they've been, what they've achieved in this world, if they do not want God in their life, he will permit them to go out into eternity without God and they'll live where there's no laughter, there's no joy, there's no happy. They will have wasted their lives totally. Now, can they go from... Hell to heaven? Frankly, I do not know. C.S. Lewis said the knob is on the side of hell. But he also wrote a book called The Great Divorce in which he pointed out that most people would rather reign in hell with Satan than serve in, in heaven with God. Now, that's my take on hell. It is real. But it is a product, if I can put it that way, of God's love. Now, chapter 2, verse 12, I want to read the rest of this section. This is Paul's summation of what he's been saying before. All who have sinned without knowledge of the law will perish without reference to the law, and all who have sinned knowing the law shall be judged according to the law. It's not familiarity with the law that justifies a man in the sight of God, but obedience to it. When Gentiles who have no knowledge of the law act in accordance with it by the light of nature, they show that they have a law in themselves, for they demonstrate the effect of a law operating on their own hearts. For their consciences endorse the existence of such a law, for there is something which condemns or excuses their actions. We may be sure that all of this will be taken into account in the day of true judgment, when God will judge men's secret lives. When God will judge men's secret lives by Christ Jesus, as my gospel plainly states. Again, he states that we know goodness is something that's instinctual. The Jews had a written law. They had the Torah. It was codified. God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. came down with the written law on tablets. So they had a clear, objective revelation of the will of God. The rest of the world has the moral law written on their hearts. That's, that's, that's you and that's me. We know. And our conscience bears witness to that knowledge. And he's not saying let, let your conscience be your guide. That's Jiminy Cricket. That's not, that's not St. Paul. Somebody said that conscience is that small, still voice that makes us feel smaller still. Uh, God gave us a conscience as well as the moral law. And the conscience endorses the existence of the law for there is something which condemns our actions and causes us to try to justify our actions. You know, I, uh, there's a scenario that I that I so often uh, hear when I meet with a man that that I think has been faith, unfaithful to his wife. What I first hear is, "Oh no, there's nothing going on," because men in trouble always lie. They will always lie. And then when you know it becomes more apparent that there's some kind of intimacy here, 
then they say, well, it's just platonic. It's just a friendship. We go out to lunch occasionally. And finally it begins to come out a little by little. And you discover that there's been, been long-term unfaithfulness. Or what makes us want to lie? What makes us want to defend our actions? What makes us want to justify what we're doing and, and not let others see? Because our conscience is condemning us and verifying the fact that we are going wrong. Earlier in uh, 2.10, Paul referred to men and women who impatient, who impatiently doing good aim at the unseen but real glory and honor of the eternal world. This sounds suspiciously like uh, salvation by works. But if you know Paul, you know that couldn't possibly be. What he's saying here, and this is very important, is that, is that there is in every one of us a deep longing for goodness. We know the moral law. Uh, We have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we long to be good. The worst of us, uh, hell's angels, uh, brother speed, it, it doesn't make a difference who you are. We long for goodness. But here's the irony. It's those who seek to be good who realize how bad they are. That's Paul's point. See, Paul himself is a prime example uh, he was a good man. He was a Pharisee. He hit, hit the long ball. He did everything right. I suppose he had the Ten Commandments on his wall, on his bedroom. And every night, he'd, he'd look at those Ten Commandments and he'd run down through the list. I didn't commit murder today. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't bear a false witness. And they got to number ten, thou shalt not covet. And as Paul said, it killed him. Because he couldn't stop coveting. He couldn't stop wanting to, to murder people or to commit adultery, or, or to bear false witness. And Paul says that's what, what put him to death. See, here's the point. The Ten Commandments and the moral law were not given to us to make us good. They don't have any power to do that. There's no dynamic in the law to change us. The law is not given to make us good. It's given to show us how bad we are. And that will be Paul's argument all the way through the rest of Romans and and the book of Galatians and any number of other places that the law never saved anyone. It wasn't given for that purpose. It was given to show us how evil our hearts really are. Let me give an example. This last uh, summer I had a lot of time to get some reading done, and I read Ben Franklin's autobiography, and I was stunned by something that he wrote. He wrote this when he was still a young man. It was about this time in his youth, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. So uh, what Franklin did was to draw up a list of virtues he hoped to achieve. And uh, these are the names of the virtues with their precepts, he says. They were temperance, silence, order, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. That's a... Good list if I ever read one. Franklin continues, But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was surprised by another, 
Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping. He drew up this wonderful list of virtues. He tackled the thing that couldn't be done with a will and went right to it. He tackled the thing that couldn't be done and he couldn't do it. That's the problem with all of us. We make New Year's resolutions. We draw up a list of resolves, things that we're going to change about ourselves. And we can't do it. Now, I don't know what happened exactly to Franklin. His autobiography breaks off before he left for Paris. We know he left America after the Revolutionary War and went to Paris. We do know that his life went into decline. He lived with... A mistress there, his conduct in Paris was less than exemplary. He could never forgive his son. His son was a loyalist, loyal to the King of England. He could never forgive him. You know, it's a very interesting thing that people who cannot forgive others very often do so because they cannot forgive themselves. There's something within them that invades against that softness, that kindness. Now, here's... The problem is that we're in the middle of a conversation. Paul is building up to a climax, to a conclusion. And we're just reading the first part of, of, the, of the conversation. He comes to his conclusion, at least of this part of his argument, in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, Paul admits that there are good people that seek for righteousness, even the worst of us would like to do better. But the problem is, it doesn't matter whether we're Jew, Gentile, uh, you know, a very evil person or a very good person. It doesn't make a, a bit of difference. It doesn't matter how hard we seek for goodness. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his character. It's what he is. And that's the standard. And that's why Paul can say we've all fallen short. Let me give you a ridiculous example. Uh, you know my uh, uh, Carolyn's mother, Clara, who's 91 years old. She's usually sitting back there in a wheelchair. Wonderful, wonderful person. Um, let's imagine that, that we line up Clara and me and Mike Powell, who is the current long jump, jump champion, on the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, jump. Um, Clara would roll off the edge. Uh, I might go out about 10 feet. Mike Powell might go out about 30 feet. But the point is, we couldn't make it because the standard is impossible. You understand what Paul is saying? Even the best of us can't make it. We all fall short of the glory of God. And here's the question. When I realize that despite my best efforts, I cannot make it, what do I do? I can keep trying harder. I can try to leap across the canyon. Or I can despair and, and give up. Or I can change my mind about myself. That's what repentance is. Repentance has no idea of remorse in it. The word in both Hebrew and Greek do not have that idea. In Greek, it just means, Hebrew just means turn around. It means the same thing in Greek. Change your mind. Change your mind. I can cry out for God. Remember the man in the temple 
Actually, there were two men in the temple. One was a very good man, one we might classify today as an evangelical Christian. And he comes into the temple to pray, and there's an, another man who comes in who, who is a down, who is down and desperate in his sin. And the good man looks at the sinner, and he says, Lord, I'm sure glad I'm not like that. I don't do those things. And, and the other man falls to his knees and cried, cries out, Lord, have mercy upon me. The sinner, he says, I sum up all the sins in the world and myself. Have mercy on, on me, the sinner. And G- Jesus asks the question, never answers it, just says, who do you think is justified before God? Say, It's the one who says, I can't make it. See, that's what it means to repent, to change your mind about whether or not you can make it and how good you have to be. It's to say, I can't make it. A Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, tells a story about an old cobbler. I read it years ago, and I tried to find it this week, and I couldn't, and I may garble the details, but this uh, cobbler's name was Martin Avdiech, and uh, uh, his life was in, in ruins, in despair. He went to find an old peasant who lived in his village who was noted for his saintliness. And he spoke to him about his despair, and he raised this question. I I think I'm correct. This is what he asked. What is a man to live for, he asked. The old man answered, for God, Martin, for God, for God. Uh, Avdiyech said, how must one live for God? Christ has shown us the way, this old man said. Buy the Gospels and read. There you will find out how to live for God. So Martin went out and bought a New Testament and began to read the Gospels. He came to Jesus' words. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Avdiyach read read these words, and he began to measure his own life. And he thought to himself, Oh, Lord, help me. See, this is the man in the temple. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. This was yes, true of all of us. We're on this bicycle trying to do better, trying to, do, trying to be good enough to please God. And, and Paul says, you, you can't. You can't ride fast enough. You can't pedal fast enough. You can't jump far enough or high enough. All you can do is cry out for mercy. Lord, help me. Now let me summarize. Chapter 1 is all about bad people. Chapter 2 is all about good people. And Paul says neither are good enough. It is true that bad people get the point before good people do. Uh, Jesus said to the good people of his day, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why? Because they know they're not very good. Am I losing something here? No. It's hard for good people to repent because we don't think we need to. I think one of the reasons Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees was because he wanted them to see themselves for what, what they were. You know, these were the rigorous religious people of his day, and he just tore into them. He never treated prostitutes and, and, and publicans and other sinners that way. He was always kind and gentle with them. But with the Pharisees, he just tore into them. Why? Because they would explode in fury. And they would do childish, vindictive things. And, and perhaps they might, might begin to see what they're really, really like. Okay? Now, when we repent, what does 
God do? When we change our mind about our state of being, when we see ourselves for what we really are, what do we face? Well, uh, again, we're in the middle of a conversation. Paul will pick this up in in the middle of chapter 3, and, and I don't want to go there today except to read one statement. We are freely justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, that's where Paul is pushing all of us. He's showing us that we don't have a leg to stand on. How are we saved? We are justified by grace through faith, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the turning point in the book. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. He cleanses us from all our sin. Isaiah says, Come now, let's reason, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. John Dunn wrote, O Christ's blood that hath this might, that being dead, being red, dies red sins white. Wonderful poem. Oh, Christ's might, that ha- Christ's blood that hath this might, that being red, dies red sins white. And then he starts the process of sanctification, which Paul will go on and describe in chapter 6 and following. He gives us his Holy Spirit, who enables us to move forward toward the holiness that our hearts desire. But uh, that's another. Uh, another subject, another day, and another sermon. I want to just briefly go back to that splendid line. Do you not know that the kindness of God is drawing to you to repentance? I hope you saw that line in the hymn that we sang. Uh, that was a great choice, Mike. That's a wonderful noun, kindness. The kindness of God draws us to repentance. See, the question is, what do you face when you decide to turn away from your sin? Do, do you face an angry, vindictive God who's out to get you? I had a friend who, who all through his life had a terrible relationship with his father. Later became a believer and he wanted to get things straightened out. And he began to realize that he was at least two-thirds of the problem. And he went to his father and apologized to him, told him how sorry he was he had wronged him, and his father threw him out of the house. Franklin never forgave his son. See, is that what we face when we turn to face God? No, his face is friendly. That word kindness means pleasant or easy. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jerome in his Latin Bible translated it with the word that means friendliness. When we turn toward God, we find that he's friendly. That verb is drawing means that he he doesn't drag, he doesn't, course. He doesn't force. He doesn't foist His love upon us. He draws us. All through our life, God has been acting in kindness towards us. He gives us love. and He gives us beauty and He gives us truth. He showers His love upon us. He does so in order to say to us, come closer. I'm friendly. He's drawing us home. Um, There was a young man who used to live in Boise, born into immense wealth. He had everything he needed and almost everything he wanted. Yet he was restless with a deep hunger for something more. He was never quite sure what it was. 
Not that life with father was all that bad. The old man was a little old-fashioned. Home was boring and provincial, but he needed to live. He needed to find himself. So he approached his father, asked for his inheritance, expressed his desire to set out on his own. His father tried to dissuade him, but in the end he gave him his request. I threw a few belongings in the bonnet of his beamer and hired himself off to San Francisco. He rented an apartment in a high-rise on Knob Hill, settled into the good life with the beautiful people there, spent lavishly, drank immoderately, surrounded himself completely, surrendered himself completely to every passion of body and soul. But the more he tried to find himself, the more lost he became. He began to do drugs, developed a cocaine habit that separated, it from his, separated him from his money and put him, put him on the streets. He ended up sleeping under a newspaper on a park bench in North Beach. Panhandled for a few coins to buy a bottle of Muscatel. Ended up homeless, friendless, destitute, strung out at the end of himself. And then he remembered home. Do you realize what I've done? I told a story that Jesus told 2,000 years ago and simply updated. It's the story of the prodigal who said to his father, I'm out of here. And he took the inheritance and he fled. He ended up eating what the pigs wouldn't eat. And he came to himself. Remarkable verse. He came to himself. He finally realized what he had at home. And he turned to his father's love. What does it mean to come to yourself? Well, when we're so frustrated by the evil in us and the good, when we can't do the good, when we realize we can't make it, when we repent and change our mind and go home, we're met by the love and embraces and the kisses of God. I envision the father in that story standing on the front steps, and as the son, st- you know, the son is rehearsing his little speech, I- I'm not worthy to be a son, I want to be a servant. And the father sees the son coming, and he hikes up his robes, and he forgets his dignity, and he runs to the son, and he throws his arms around him, and even though he smells like pigs, he smothers him with kisses, and walk, the, the kid doesn't even get his first word out. And the son says, come home, come home. Jesus said there's rejoicing. There's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Heaven erupts in laughter and in partying when one sinner comes. See, that's what you find when you repent, when you turn from your sin and you turn to God. Now, this has mostly been to those, I think, that are here searching for God. I also need to say one thing, one brief thing, to those of us that are Christians. The same principle is at work in us. We want to do better. We want to be more like Jesus. And we try, and we try, and we try, and we fail. The same principle is at work, you see. The New Testament obligations, the new covenant in Christ that's given to us, the so-called commands for, for infinite love, in the New Testament are impossible. We are to be as mature as God is. We are to love as Christ loves. Who can do that? Why are those laws given? To frustrate us. To help us realize we can't do it. And it's the 
good people, the people who want to be good, who more and more see how evil they are. That's the irony. John Newton wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul on every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue this worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer. For grace and faith, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mightest find thy all in me. So when we try and fail and we cry out, Lord, help me, that's when change begins. Uh, Wonderful old John Newton, if you saw the movie Amazing Grace, you saw a touch of that in that in that wonderful story. Uh, John Newton, in his dotage, uh, lost much of his memory. I, I, I sympathize. That's why I stick more closely to my notes than I ever did before. Uh, he said, I, I cannot remember much, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and God is a great Savior. And that's enough for me. Let's pray. That's... Uh, The realization to which we all come sooner or later, we are all great sinners, but you're a great Savior. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.